Hey, first readers, a quick word before we start. We've had a blast doing first reading these past years, and we'd love to see it expand and grow. If you'd also like to help us in this endeavor, you can support us, not only by listening, but by making an online donation. On our website at firstreadingpodcast.com, there is a donate button that will allow you to make a one-time donation via PayPal or any major credit card, or you can set up a recurring monthly gift as well. For any first readers who set up a recurring $5 or more donation, we'll send you a complimentary first reading coffee mug with a little biblical Hebrew humor on one side. Thanks and enjoy this episode. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for fans of the Hebrew Bible everywhere. I'm Rosie Candlepole, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And I'm the Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University in Ohio. Not really sure why I'm speaking in a British accent right now. Sounds appropriate. Our ter- right, exactly. <laughs> You're going to give the full title. <laughs> Our terrifically talented co-host, Tim McNinch, is off this week. So, Rosie, here we are, chugging our way through ordinary time living into the gift of the Holy Spirit in this, the 17th Sunday after Pentecost, October 2nd. So for folks who have been following along, or for folks who have not, we've been focusing on the strand of first readings from the Revised Common Lectionary that were selected for their thematic or complementary relationship to the Gospel lections. That gives the Gospel a little bit of an advantage, don't you think, Rosie? <laughs> it does, but I also mm. want to let our preachers know, hey, we're on your side. No, you're a better person than I am. So Rosie is up. So good for you, preachers, because you've got Rosie this week and she's on your side. And we've landed in Habakkuk 1 and 2. So Habakkuk, not one of the most well-known prophets of the uh, Hebrew Bible, right? Right. Not the one that wins the popularity contest. <laughs> right. Habakkuk is standing on the side of the gym while all the other prophets are Exactly. Dancing. Right. The athletes in the middle there, Isaiah, <laughs> Jeremiah, Ezekiel, <laughs> taking up the show. And then there's Habakkuk behind the curtain. Uh, not the first name that pops up in our minds at the first mention of biblical prophets. Right. No. So, so Habakkuk is among the 12 of the so-called minor prophets. It's hmm. a, a title, incidentally, that only came into parlance in Augustine's time, late in the fourth century oh. uh, AD, right? So, but the 12 so called minor prophets had shorter books attributed to them. They were written over a period of about 500 years, and they were eventually collected together. And hmm. scribes, for lots of practical and economic reasons, copied the 12 onto one scroll. Hmm. That scroll came to be referred to as the Book of Twelve, and this is one of the reasons why this group of shorter prophetic books are grouped together in our Bibles at the end of the Old Testament, in case you're wondering. Hmm. Over the last couple of decades, there's been more recognition of a unity among the Book of the Twelve, like message, theme, structure, even common language like the Day of the Lord, which link these 12 shorter prophetic books together. And I'm giving you some of this background because I I think it's kind of important to put Habakkuk within a, uh, a larger context as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm just going to copy that and then use that next year when I'm introducing the Book of the Twelve because that was perfection. All right. So we know that Habakkuk is a short book that falls within the Twelve. But what can we say about this prophet? Like, what do we really know about him? Yeah, not much. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't really have any biographical information about Habakkuk himself. Yeah. So we don't know what social class he came from, whether he was rich or poor, what kind of work he did, like whether he was a farmer like Amos or a priestly lineage like Ezekiel and Jeremiah. We don't get that kind of typical call story that we expect about how a prophet mm-hmm. was initially called by God and then reluctantly said no, but mm-hmm. then got taken into his mission. <laughs> but because of a reference in Habakkuk, one verse six 
to the rise of the Chaldeans, better known to us as the Babylonians. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> ah, most scholars date the composition of this book to the 6th century BCE and a period of time after the death of King Josiah at the hands of Pharaoh Necho in 609 BCE. Mm. Following King Josiah's death, Judah became a vassal of Egypt briefly. That's until the Babylonians uh, conquered Egypt a few short years later, uh, four years later in 605 BCE, and then gained control of Judah. Apparently, uh, there were some diehard fans of uh, Egypt among (laughs) the upper class and King Jehoiakim of Judah, which caused Babylon to treat Judah as more of a conquered enemy Mm. um, and some bad blood. The result was a Judean revolt. A few years later, in 598 BCE, and a Babylonian put-down that resulted in the first deportations of the Judean king and many of the upper classes who were forced into exile in Babylon in 597. Now, because of the general expectation that God would punish the Babylonians in Habakkuk, most scholars date this prophet to the reigns of King Jehoiakim and his son. But before the fall of Judah, the destruction of the temple and the second deportations in 586 BCE. Oh, nice. Again, perfectly summarized. I feel like if you're going to understand the interplay between Egypt, Judah, Israel, Assyria, Babylon, it's like a giant soap opera that takes place over hundreds of years. And it's like, do I love you? No, you cheated on me. It's just kind of absolutely huge back and forth, right? It's like a huge Game of Thrones. I think yes. when I think about it too, it's like people are shuffling, powers are rising, things are falling, you know, like kings are dying. <laughs> right, like, exactly. It's just the rollover of empires, you know, and, and the struggle for power of which, you know, Judah and Israel were a part. Right. Well, and that struggle for power at this particular moment in history was so fraught with tension. Mm-hmm. So that background is super important in considering the reading from Habakkuk, Right. Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing that up, right? Because I I wondered whether we should talk so much about the geopolitical background, but I always think what helps um, highlight the kinds of issues that they're thinking about and the um, the matrix of power in which they are also mm. trying to insert God's voice and, you know, God's work and mission. So yeah. uh, it's all, you know, both the personal and the universal, the cosmos is involved in, yeah. in this, which is what the prophets are often drawing our attention to. Yeah. And there's a particular part of that cosmos that really is like under Habakkuk's skin here, right? Right. So the book of Habakkuk addresses questions of the theodicy, right? That's mm. a big word for um, trying to understand God's silence and inaction in the face of unjust suffering and evil. And while there's a perennial sense, these questions about God, they persist all through time. There's also an important uh, singular context to the questions that Habakkuk addresses toward God and the kind of answer he receives. And that has to do with the geopolitical conflict that Habakkuk finds mm-hmm. himself in as well. So Habakkuk is made up of only three chapters. It's really short. Like I said, the first two chapters contain a dialogue between the prophet and God in which the prophet makes a complaint to God, but God provides an uh, unnerving, um, not so comforting response. Hmm. Uh, Yeah. Par for course, right? (laughs) right. (laughs) Essentially when the prophet begs God to end the violence that he sees in the land, God claims responsibility for that very Mm. violence through the Babylonians, which, you know, is, is kind of a shocking response, right? The prophet then complains, look, this violence is sweeping up everyone in his path. It's like a dragnet. Uh, And he waits for God's response in chapter two, which we also hear in this reading, that little snippet, God commands the prophet to write, but that this prophecy is for a later time. 
the wicked will fall and the righteous shall live eventually. Hmm. And then he follows up by a series of five oracles, all sort of starting with that hoy that we always make mention of, alas, whoa, five of those in a row condemning the wicked. But that final third chapter, and this is kind of going back to this idea of structure, that is made up extraordinarily to me of a prayerful response. Mm -hmm. It's a remarkable liturgical psalm that was probably sung by a congregation. Mm -hmm. Despite its small size, Habakkuk has had a massive role in both Judaism and Christianity. Mm -hmm. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was discovered a pesher or a commentary on Habakkuk 1 and 2 that relates this prophecy to the early history of the Qumran community. And that Mm -hmm. is immensely important to Mm -hmm. the history of Judaism and for Christians as well. But Paul is the kind of major reason for Mm -hmm. Christians to pay attention here because he makes extensive use of Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, that verse that reads the just shall live by faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he quotes that uh, both in his letter to the Romans and in the Galatians. It also shows up in Hebrews, not a letter by Paul, uh, but by an unknown uh, author in chapter 10. And and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, why this might be important to pay attention to. Well, and I love the way you gave that whole context of the book because it is so short, number one. And number two, because we get such a snippet mm-hmm. of it. You know, we we get just the opening verses of the first two chapters, basically. So what's going on there? Right. I mean, our reading this Sunday is actually a pretty clever cut and paste <laughs> job uh, from, the, from the committee, uh, from chapters one and two. It gives us just the opening snippet in which we get the bare introduction of the prophet and his message, which reads the oracle or the burden that the prophet Habakkuk saw. Mm-hmm. And then it just launches us into a series of really painful questions with resonance to other prophetic utterances. For first readers, you'll recognize some of this language. So Habakkuk cries out, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? and you refuse to listen or cry Mm -hmm. out violence and you will not save. So these complaints should sound a bit familiar for those of us that have been reading in the Old Testament for a while. They fall into a pattern that reminds us of prophets like Jeremiah and Jonah, or even passages in Psalms and uh, in Job, which also make complaints about violence and injustice in the world. Essentially, Habakkuk is claiming that God's failure to act in the face of such egregious violence has the effect of making God's law ineffective for Mm -hmm. enforcing justice. So in Habakkuk 1 verse 4, the Torah or instruction is slow uh, as a result of this violence that he sees and mishpat, judgment, it just gets twisted around while the wicked encircle the righteous. It seems like a pretty fair complaint that Habakkuk is making, but then our reading cuts us and it moves us swiftly to chapter two, where we listen to God's enigmatic response. Yeah, flesh that out a little bit. Like what what do you see as God's response here? Because one of the things I love about Habakkuk is there's so much room to interpret. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that can be difficult about Habakkuk is there's so much room to interpret. So like oh my break goodness. that down. Right. So I, I'm trying to stick with the verses that the first reading gives us because mm-hmm. there's a ton to say in between yeah. here. But we skip from verse four in chapter one up to chapter two, verse one, mm-hmm. which is actually the close of the prophet's complaint. So Apocalypse draws upon this common image of the prophet as the watchman of Israel, who stands guards on the heights and calls out a warning when he sees trouble. Well, mm-hmm. Habakkuk is on the lookout here, and he's looking at God, interestingly enough, yeah. not looking at the people of Israel, whom the prophets are usually pretty fixated on. Yeah. Habakkuk is interested to see if and how God will respond to his complaint. And that's kind of unusual, right? So Habakkuk is unusual for never addressing the people of Israel directly. His dialogue is between 
him and God. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that about the book of Habakkuk. We have not only a dialogue between a prophet and God, but like Israel, the people are just sort of tertiary. Like they're not involved in it's, it's kind of like the prophets, like, could you hold, please? I have a conversation I need to have with someone who's important to me. Like God is the one being addressed with all of the angst of the prophet here. Absolutely right. Right. God is the one that's on trial, not yes, the people. Right. Right. Usually we hear the prophets are indicting the people for whatever injustice that's going <laughs> on. But the injustice here is God's injustice. Yeah. Right. And that's an unusual feature. God answers Habakkuk, but doesn't address the prophet's initial questions. Mm -hmm. God merely tells Habakkuk to be patient and to wait. Hmm. So in two, uh, one, right. So uh, God says, write down the vision, make it clear easy to read, easy to understand. Now the NRSV renders the Hebrew as quote, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. Yeah. Um, and I, I have to be honest with our listeners here. I really wrestled with this verse. I could not understand <laughs> what is God saying to Bacchic? Mm. Uh, I'm just trying to understand the words here, right? So What's the vision that God wants Habakkuk to write down? Mm -hmm. um, there seems to be a lot going on. This is not a vision to be communicated orally, as we might expect, which is where we kind of often talk about how the prophets are speaking live to an audience. There's a, a live performance that's going on. Uh, but here there's a vision that needs to be written down, uh, mm -hmm. presumably then for posterity. I have trouble also understanding how tablets work here. So I kind of <laughs> dug into the Hebrew and the material of tablets in this Hebrew word, Lukot, uh, suggests a hard surface like wood, metal, stone, maybe fired clay. Mm -hmm. And the verb there uh, for, for writing down, for making it clear is uh, Beit Aleph Resh Ba'ar, which references engraving or digging, making maybe distinct letters. What does it mean also then that a runner should be able to read it? Yeah, right. Right? Do people read when they run? I mean, I just had trouble understanding. How can you read stone or wood or metal or even clay tablets as you run? Yeah. And I'll need to ask the listeners to maybe bear with me on this, but I hope this will pay off. The only way I could make sense of this was by remembering a trip I made to Egypt some years ago. And the tour guide was explaining why the images and letters on the columns in the mm -hmm. temples had stood the test of time. And the tour guide told us that kings would demand that the images be deeply engraved, like dug so deeply into the stone by the artisans that wind and time could not erase their impact. Mm -hmm. And it struck me back then the kind of labor and cost that went into ensuring that one day, Thousands of years later, I would be able to see these images and words and remember as well. And is this what God is demanding the prophet to do? Other translations suggest that the verse should be read, make it clear on the tablet so that one may read it easily. And that mm -hmm. makes a kind of sense to me. It kind of smooths out the strange image of a runner reading quickly to something like what I understand to be maybe skimming. Mm. But I rather think that the next verse makes my sense of a stone tablet deeply incised or a column uh, more compelling. Like in the next verse, Habakkuk chapter two, verse three, God claims that the vision is not for immediate consumption, but is for the future and a quote, appointed time. It speaks of the end. It does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. Let's close the quote. The idea then of a messenger, a runner who could look up and see the engravings on stone easily not only because they were large and distinct, but also because they were chiseled deep into the stone yeah. seems more compelling to me with that verse in mind. Now, 
God makes the claim that this prophecy will not make sense now. It's it's not a now time prophecy, but it will make sense later. Hmm. Now, I don't know what you think of that, Rachel, but I, I know that you just returned from a recent trip to Palestine. Hmm. And um, I wonder what you think of this theory that the verse is perhaps recalling the way that ancient monuments carefully preserve the records of pharaohs and kings. Runners, messengers would look at palace walls and see the words and images on them and know something of the power and strength of the king that resided there. So in some similar way, I wonder if this is what God wants, that this vision be written down and preserved for a future time. And well, here we are doing just that with a prophecy uh, that was written way back in the sixth century BC uh, in the shadow of a Babylonian empire and its crushing strength, which God through this prophet claims will not endure. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, just historically, you think of all the monumental stuff in Babylon, like the huge statues and the huge paintings and the huge writings. The prophet may not have been there, but you have to think that he had heard about it, that people knew the reputation of Babylon um, and this monumental stuff that, like you said, was just chiseled into the living stone. So I think historically it makes a lot of sense. I think it makes a lot of sense, too, if you're thinking of a community that is that threatened. Um, So if they if they know if exile has come to some and if they're anticipating that exile has come to others, then one of the things that God could be proclaiming is essentially that you shall return to this land. Write the thing here so that future generations, when they come back, will be able to see it. Um, So I think it makes sense in that sense. And then I think the other thing you mentioned, my recent um, trip to Israel-Palestine, the other thing that makes sense is just the the productive capacity for art of a threatened community is <laughs> quite stunning. Um, so in, in Jerusalem and in and around parts of Palestinian cities, they have what's called these separation walls. And I had heard of those before, but I'd never really... It's hard to really... Um, understand them until you've been there. They are 25 feet tall and almost 10 feet wide, and they have barbed wire at the top. I mean, they're, it's to call it a wall is, is um, minimizing. It's like a, it's like a fortress wall. And on the Palestinian side where they are enclosed in by those walls, those walls are covered in art. Uh, and there's this one image in particular. It's this giant drawing of a woman's figure. It's almost as tall. It's on the wall. It's almost as tall as the wall itself. It's huge. Um, and she's she's um, stretching her hands up into the air. She's painted orange. And behind her is this black, oppressive cityscape. And it kind of frames her body in sharp relief. And out of her outstretched hands flies a flock of birds. Uh, it's, so it's like they're stretching up to reach beyond the oppressive city reach the the orange sky beyond it um it's really an arresting image and it's massive uh, a runner could easily see it hmm. if you will and it, and it speaks to me of a time beyond the present suffering which i think matches so clearly what you're talking about with, with habakkuk there too it's interesting too because i think you know you talked about how paul pulls out that verse in chapter two the righteous shall live by faith but without this chapter one kind of mm. context, it's really easy to, to make that one embroidered on a pillow, right? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Right. And I'm glad that you're bringing us now to the, to the last verse in this first reading, right? So uh, Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, right? Listeners might recognize that last line, like I said, in the reading, which has been translated, the righteous live by their faith. Mm-hmm. Paul cites Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, twice in Romans.
Romans and Galatians, the just shall live by faith, mm-hmm. as the primary biblical support for his doctrine of justification by faith. And we're talking with Luther <laughs> here, right? So, uh, so we've got really like an expert here. But this is where Paul argues that God justifies persons through grace alone without recourse to works of righteousness. Mm-hmm. One thing that might be worth pointing out here is in the Hebrew, in the context of Habakkuk, this word that's translated as faith is emunah, right? Which carries the con- connotation of, of faithfulness, yeah. of faithful living. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the second half of a contrast, right? So this verse begins with Hine, look, look up at the puffed up, the proud, how his life is not right. It's not mm-hmm. prosperous within him. Yeah. That's the first half of the verse, uh, verse four. The second half is the contrast, but the righteous, the just, they thrive, they live in their faithfulness, right? Mm-hmm. So there's something there about, uh, you know, both works and both our belief system, our faith, our mm-hmm. firmness. There is that word emuna, um, is is more encompassing maybe than uh, the way that this verse has been um, argued over for centuries. I think so. And I think it, you know, it's almost like this verse is a nice end cap to our discussion about Amos from the week before, mm. where it's like, you know, the the lifestyle that those people were pursuing was was killing them. And, and what Habakkuk or God seems to be saying here is that um, there's a different way. There's a different way to both live and believe and operate in the world mm-hmm. um, that, that leads to justice, thriving and um, faithfulness. Mm-hmm. So... Okay, so uh, take us through some some preaching points. I mean, I feel like we're already there, but how would you approach preaching on this one? Right, I've got, I mean, a couple of words to say. I want to remind us again about the structure, right? So I spent a little mm-hmm. time talking about the whole book, even though the reading is really from chapters one and two. There is a powerful dialogue here between the prophet and God in these chapters, but the story doesn't end there, right? And I want to highlight the final chapter, chapter three, which is not in our reading, uh, but it is here uh, an important point. There's a congregational response at the end of this dialogue. We have a psalm, and it seems valuable to consider the structure of this book carefully. Mm. There is a lot of pain and frustration in Habakkuk's Mm. prayer. And there's a lot we can say about God's seeming non-response, the response (laughs) to just wait, to have faith that justice will eventually prevail. Uh, uh, And that just doesn't seem enough for those that are suffering in the moment, right? But the story of Habakkuk, the way that the editors in their, you know, wisdom put this book together, they made sure that it it didn't end there. Mm. The book ends with this incredible expression of communal faith. Habakkuk closes with this incredible uh, recitation of faith, and it reads, though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the field yields no food, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. Hmm. That's how this book ends with a hymn of patient praise, despite all the trouble and evil that is not a denial of what is going on. It's in fact, a re, you know, just a reaffirmation that the scene is very, very bad. <laughs> but in spite of all that, the book ends with praise. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's something really humbling to me. I'm, I'm kind of tearing up too. Yeah. The gospel lection from Luke for this week also reinforces the theme of patient faithfulness. Mm-hmm. But I think in a more difficult way and a harder way to preach, right? The reading yeah. from Luke is about having faith as small as a mustard seed and also about slaves who must be patient and wait until their master is served. And then Mm. I suppose be grateful, right? Mm. Well, yikes, if I were preaching, I'm not sure I want to talk about the realities of slavery in the ancient world. 
But Jesus certainly offers a window into that also history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, In any case, I also remain struck by the images of those ancient monuments that we talked about, Mm -hmm. the deep incisions, the the, um, persistence of art in the face of really difficult circumstances, creativity, things like this that would maybe stand the test of time. And I was preparing for this uh, conversation with you. It's that image of death, of the kind of faithfulness and faith it takes for the long haul to Mm -hmm. wait, even when it seems like the fig tree will not blossom, there's no fruit on the vines, to Mm -hmm. praise in the painful acceptance of a diagnosis Mm -hmm. or a disappointing life event. Habakkuk remains then a testament to the value of staying in relationship with God and also with others. So that's mm, where I think mm. this chapter three makes a real difference, right? It's it's mm, not just mm. a dialogue between the prophet and God or between me and God and my complaint. There's also a congregation that sings uh, mm. and reminds me, you know, in the midst of all of that, as bad as things are, that God makes my feet like the feet of a deer, mm. you know, like that I, I can be light too in the midst of all of this darkness and heaviness. That's so beautiful. I love that. I could imagine a sermon too that ends with with inviting the congregation to read chapter three together. So like you preach on chapters one and two, and then you end with describing chapter three. And then to really honor, like you were saying, that Habakkuk draws us deeper into relationship with God and with others, then you read that chapter three as kind of a, a communal um, honoring of uh, uh, sort of like being the living stones upon which Habakkuk is is Ooh. writing this message, you know, like carrying it with us and inside of us and together. So I love that idea, Rosie. That's oh, so I love neat. That. Mm-hmm. Not to end on too happy of a note because I'm Lutheran. So any preaching pitfalls <laughs> you want to highlight for us? <laughs> Good. Right. I, th- I think I just want to be careful about framing this passage from Hab- Habakkuk. The reading mm. makes it sound as though the prophet received an adequate answer for his question. Mm. And nothing could be farther from the truth, yeah. right? Habakkuk's opening questions are not ultimately addressed. Where is God in the midst of the trouble and evil you're experiencing? Why doesn't God save us from that trouble? (laughs) Well, in Habakkuk, God claims to be the one responsible for that trouble. God claims to be part of the evil that the prophet sees. And not only that, God promises that it will get worse. Now, that's not an easy message to preach. And this is just not a tidy passage. The prophet is commanded to wait and to write a vision for the future. Even though it looks like the end, the story is not over. Mm. And we might not see it in our lifetime, but living into faith and living into our faithfulness is hanging on for the hymn at the end of the service. Nice. (laughs) Beautiful. Beautiful. I think that's a great place to wrap up. I love it. Thanks, Rosie, for tackling a a really hard text with with graciousness and with grit. That was awesome. Remember, friends, all of our episodes are at firstreadingpodcast.com, along with other resources. And now your very own First Reading swag on the merch page. Check it out. If you're on Facebook, you can also find us there and give us some feedback in the comments. Special thank you to those who generously choose to donate to keep First Reading sustainable. Thanks also to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for the grant. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren. And I'm Rosie Canipal. Have a great week.